In last week's episode, we introduced two new characters, Benjamin Franklin Thomas and Joseph Brown Whitehead. These two characters presented a proposition of bottling Coca-Cola to Asa Candler, the CEO of Coke at the time, and they built on Joseph Biedenhahn's initial idea. We also included some context as to how Candler got to where he was in Coca-Cola. We arrived at his conclusion, influenced heavily by his past attachment to the business, as he'd been working there for over a decade. Candler believed that the cost of bottling machinery and the general capital expenditure required to carry out such an operation would simply be too much for the firm to handle. Candler also believed that investing in such a risky idea for the firm would be unnecessary as they would be continuous beating profit expectations year on year, so why harm it? His overthinking of the proposition viewed it as potentially harmful to the existing sales channel through the soda fountains. So Thomas and Whitehead went to Asa Candler's office. They faced an uphill battle and they knew that there was no need for Candler to believe that he had not already succeeded in bringing Coca-Cola to Americans everywhere. It may sound crazy, but at that time there was no incentive for him to take them on as partners. They tried their best, but they eventually convinced him that they would make Coca-Cola better, better known and better loved. With every bottle that they sold, they would not harm the brand and they would actually improve the brand. And ultimately, Candler relented. He believed that they would be bankrupt before long, so he issued them with these things called perpetual contracts that also set the price of syrup in perpetuity at a dollar a gallon they got the rights to the whole country forever except a place called new england where coca-cola had an arrangement with syrup brokers that the company did not want to jeopardize a little bit of conflict of interest there we probably shouldn't miss out mississippi because that was a place where joseph biedenhahn had been bottling coke we must also give an honorable mention to texas because they well, like a separate country in so many ways they were left out of the original agreement as well so what actually happened you may ask well with the stroke of a pen candler let go of what must have seemed to him a small idea that wouldn't have any harm to him it lingered in his office for a moment it kind of went into his mind and then went out through the open window it would return as a giant bird of Pray, maybe like an eagle screeching and smashing its head against the glass, an entity that was most horrible to the Coca-Cola company because it was essentially beyond their control. You see, a perpetual contract is like a marriage, except a marriage that you can't get a divorce from. You're stuck inside it and there's no way that you can go, well, this is a sticky situation. It's almost like walking into a non-Newtonian fluid and expecting to get out easily. It doesn't work. The lesson that can be learned here is that you should never underestimate somebody else's proposition. If it is a strong proposition, make sure that you become partners of a significant degree, at least having a major equity stake. You see, in this situation, Asa Candler thought, I don't want anything of it. I'll just make sure they buy more of the syrup from me. Now, as a result of this, you'd expect Coke's sales to go up of the concentrate. But the problem is they're creating a whole other market that is across the entire country. And that is a huge problem for them because they are not able to benefit from it. Not a single cent. Maybe they're charging a little bit more and making 
huge profits year on year in terms of growth, but Coca-Cola has essentially signed away a huge slice of potential opportunity for nothing. Now, looking back, Thomas and Whitehead opened their first factory in 1899 in a place called Chattanooga. That's uh, where one of the lads had been a lawyer in. And before Thanksgiving, their ads started to appear in one of the local newspapers. They had a thing called, Drink a bottle of Coca-Cola. Five cents at all stands, grocers and saloons. While the bottled soda sold briskly, they quickly discovered that equipping factories, hiring people, and delivering the goods was expensive and also time-consuming more so than they had actually counted on. They were finding out that Candler was right, bottling was difficult and costly, and no wonder the Coca-Cola company hadn't wanted to get involved with it. They actually needed a better idea and they needed it quick. And soon after this, they had an idea. They would intentionally sell franchises to other ambitious businessmen, monitoring them and acting as brokers by reselling the syrup they bought from the Coca-Cola company at a slight markup. They would make money on these franchise sales either in cash or by taking an ownership stake in the businesses, and they would make more money from the syrup sales. These ingenious ideas had secured the survival of Thomas and Whitehead, the guys who were supposedly bound to be bankrupt, according to Asa Candler. And as you'd expect, after surviving what would have been an impossible task at the time, Thompson and Whitehead decided to expand. They attracted people from all over. These guys managed to get people from all over, and everyone learned as they went along. The early bottlers used horses and mules to pull wagons full of bottled coke and borrowed money to build brand new bottling factories. They invested in wooden crates. There was uh, glass bottles that they had also invested in, and they also had some paper labels. They paid the Coca-Cola company for barrels of its syrup which Coke delivered straight to their doors, and other companies provided them with carbon dioxide, the key to making the syrup in Coca-Cola. One was called the Liquid Carbonic Company, and they were out of Chicago. They would ship containers of gas by railroad to the bottlers, saving them from having to generate CO2 themselves through chemical reaction. And by 1905, Whitehead and Thomas had Coke bottlers from coast to coast across the nation. There was one just about anywhere. I mean, you'd be surprised. There was one in LA. There was another one in South Bend, Indiana, which is probably not so familiar to our audience. Oklahoma may be a name that pops up. They were basically selling Coca-Cola in bottles and succeeding beyond their wildest dreams. They caught the nation in peacetime as consumer culture was flourishing. Choice and the option to drink or eat something that had been made outside of home was increasingly acceptable, and not just acceptable, but appealing as well. This whole movement was revolutionary. They were almost like evangelists, distributing a basic track. They offered a product that was easy to ingest, and they made it available to the widest possible range of people. No more would soda fountains with their marble counters and main street hours be the sole dispensers of Coca-Cola. Whether a person was poor, rich, regardless of their creed, it didn't matter. Coca-Cola was available to all in bottle format. Although it seemed like Thomas and Whitehead had the most 
amazing agreement of all time. This partnership that had brought bottled coke to the nation soon needed refining, and by 1900, Whitehead and Thomas couldn't agree on contract terms for the new bottlers that they were busy creating. And like gentlemen, they came to an amicable conclusion. They divided the country along a modified Mason-Dixon line, with Thomas taking Chattanooga plus 15 states north and west and Whitehead holding up to much of the south. The way it worked was that Whitehead had his own company and that would be called Dixie Coca-Cola Bottling Company and Thomas would have his own that was known as the Coca-Cola Bottling Company. Now the two clear differences between the two in terms of their bottling had been that Thomas would continue to offer his bottles in the brown glass bottle. Now with Whitehead, the bottles were either clear or green. Even though they had this split, there was a great expansion that came straight after this. One example of the intense marketing activity that went on had consisted of the bottlers sending cases full of Coca-Cola, free cases, to stores just to get them to try it. They even met passenger trains at the station. They pushed their bottles of Coke aboard and they got someone farther up the line to collect the empties and send them back. And you wouldn't believe it that in the beginning, some of these new customers had never tried Coca-Cola, something that is so well known in our modern society today, something that is a family name, a household brand. It's interesting to note that in the past, some analysts have actually described the Coca-Cola company as essentially a cult, but it would be argued that the bottlers were even more of a cult. And at this point, we must wonder, do they get along? Well, in peacetime and in war, the bottlers appeared to get along with the Coca-Cola company. Their ideas were distinct, to be sure. Coke made its money comfortably up front from syrup sales, whilst the bottlers had to squeeze up their profits farther along the chain. But Coke enjoyed a corporate eminence centered in Atlanta. The bottler was a local guy whose manufacturing plant usually sat near the center of town. There was an interesting difference. Coke believed in mass marketing from the start, whereas the bottlers specialized in the personal touch. By the 1920s, schoolchildren were trooping through Coke plants on tours, watching the familiar glass containers go along the conveyor belts and filling with sweet brown soda and they grew up to feel a special kind of connection with the Coca-Cola that they saw that was made nearby to a chorus of clinking, hissing and clanking that often meant jobs for one or more of their kin as well. We were building the generation, said one executive at Coca-Cola. I assume you're probably asking yourself, what does this mean, building the next generation? Well, Coca-Cola didn't just have plans to dominate domestic markets, but also they had intended to dominate the international market and become a global household brand. Well, in the next episode of the rise of the Coca-Cola company, we will be looking at how the bottlers got on with the Coca-Cola company, and if there were any disputes, we'll look at some of the ones that had occurred. And we will also finish that episode with Candler's mistakes leading to him selling the company in 1919. Thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Ryan Keir. If you haven't already, head on over to quantumresearch.co.uk and sign up for further updates. Feel free to check out some of our articles on technical analysis. Once again, I've been your host, Ryan Keir. Until next time.